Would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12? We'll be reading Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 34. So it's a big, a big chunk this week. Uh, beginning last week, uh, when Pastor Tim preached, uh, we've transitioned into, in the story of Mark, into the, the final seven days of Jesus' life in Jerusalem leading up to his execution. And when Jesus arrived in the capital city, he, he turned up the heat a, a little bit, very publicly acting like he's king, acting like he owns the place, really. And he pulls a huge stunt in the most public place, an important place, confronting religious and political leaders. And so these religious and political leaders, they come picking fights with him because he called them out on hypocrisy and corruption. And then, so there's three different groups here of religious leaders that confront Jesus, trying to trap him by arguing about contentious issues. And so I want us to look at these these three interactions. So Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we are grateful for you and your love, for your grace through your Son. Give us ears to hear you speak and hearts to believe and embrace your truth for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so in this story, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they come and they try to argue with Jesus about politics. And the Sadducees come and they try to argue with Jesus about theology. And then the scribe comes and he tries to argue with Jesus about morality. But Jesus turns all three of these arguments into discussions about the nature of faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love are three great pillars of Christianity. The Apostle Paul uses these three virtues as a kind of summary statement for what it means to live as a Christian. In 1 Corinthians 13, when he says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And through these three arguments that Jesus gets into here in Mark chapter 12, he gives us some really important insight into the nature of faith, hope, and love that are to mark his followers. And so let's look at this this first interaction. Okay, so the Pharisees and the Herodians come up to Jesus asking about a really polarizing topic, uh, a tax. And the Pharisees, they were against Roman imperial power, but the Herodians were all for it. And so there are two sides of a political spectrum. And what they had in common was that they didn't like Jesus very much. And so they try to trap him in this political net and fit him into one side or the other. Sound familiar? And so they're asking if they should pay taxes to Caesar or not. And they disguise what they're doing with flattery and buttering him up. But Jesus sees right through it and he cuts right to the chase. And just a side note, I love that uh, he says, bring me a denarius, because a denarius was not worth very much, but Jesus didn't even have one. And so, you know, to these people, they're arguing about something that's so important to them, money, and with someone who just couldn't care less about it. But anyway, so uh, Jesus says, whose image is on this coin? When, he get, when he, someone brings him a coin, he says, whose image is on this coin? And they answer, Caesar. And so Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And give to God what is God's. And they marvel at his answer. And I, but I'm not sure if the questioner knew what Jesus meant or if he just didn't care. But the follow-up question should have been, okay, well, what belongs to God? And the answer is, whose image is on you? The first few pages of the Bible tell us that God created human beings in his image. Jesus says, give to Caesar that which has his image on it, but give yourself to the one whose image is on you. Sure, give Caesar his money. He can have it, but he can't have you. He can't have your ultimate allegiance. That belongs to God alone. This man wanted to argue with Jesus about politics, but Jesus skillfully redirects to much more important teaching on the nature of faith. And now you may ask why I'm saying this is Jesus talking about faith. Well, the word we often translate faith in in the New Testament, the Greek word is pistis. It has the idea of fidelity and loyalty and allegiance. For instance, in a Jewish text that was written 
in Greek, just a little over 100 years before Jesus, we see this word used this way. Uh, Here's a quote. King Demetrius, to the nation of the Jews, greetings. Since you have kept your agreement with us and have continued your friendship with us and have not sided with our enemies, we have heard of it and rejoiced. Now continue still to keep faith with us. And we will repay you with good for what you do for us. So you see, from this, from this passage, we see that the word faith involves uh, a, more than just belief that something is true. King Demetrius is using it to speak of loyalty and allegiance to him rather than to his enemies. And we even have this in our own language, don't we? I mean, we use the word faithful. What's it mean to be faithful, full of faith? It means to be committed, devoted, loyal. My dad was a Marine, and he taught me the phrase semper fi. Fi is short for fidelis. It's a Latin term that means always faithful. It's a phrase capturing the great loyalty and allegiance of the Marines. This is the essential aspect of faith in Jesus, giving him our ultimate allegiance above all others. Moses is a great example of this. When the author of Hebrews is talking about the faith of Moses in chapter 11, he says this, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses was choosing to transfer his allegiance from Pharaoh in Egypt to the kingdom of Yahweh. And this is what it means to be a believer in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul meant when he said that he has transferred us or delivered us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This world and all other things that demand our allegiance are within the domain of darkness. But Christ is the king who offers light and life to those who pledge their devotion and allegiance to him. Like Moses, we must definitively decide to identify with Christ and the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of this world. I press on this because it shatters this dichotomy that so many people have where they say they believe in Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. That they accept His forgiveness, but not His authority. If you're believing in Jesus in that way, you're not really believing in Him with biblical faith. The very form of faith He calls us to is trusting Him to be the master of our life. To take our sin, yes, but also to take ourself. Give to God what has His image on it. Give God yourself. And we will see this, that in this third argument that Jesus gets into, when we give Him our whole self, our whole mind, body, and soul, it's in the context of a relationship that is utterly saturated in love. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. So let's look at this second argument that Jesus gets into. When Jesus finishes up with the Pharisees and the Herodians, the Sadducees, Step up to take a swing at him. So the Sadducees, they were like a, they were kind of a small group of, of religious leaders. You know, their influence was bigger than the size of, of their group. But it just so happened because that that was the case because this group was full of wealthy and influential 
religious leader types. And so some of the high-ranking priests were a part of this group, for instance. And they had some unique beliefs among Jews, one of which was they didn't believe in the resurrection, which is the idea that God would raise people bodily after they died and restore and renew humanity and creation. So they just believed human beings lived on through having children and keeping the family name alive. No final judgment. When you die, you just go to the grave, and that's it. And i got to say, it's awfully convenient, isn't it? That the people at the top, the top religiously and socially and economically, these are the people who think God doesn't need to intervene in this world and radically transform it. The people for whom this world is working out just fine are the people who are like, oh yeah, we can do away with all that future hope business. How convenient is that? But not for Jesus. Jesus definitely did believe in the resurrection and he taught about it and he held it as his own great hope and the driving, motivating idea for his own ministry. And so these Sadducees, they come up with this straw man argument. They devise this ridiculous scenario based on their view of the resurrection and they present it to Jesus to try and make him look stupid. They say, Jesus, if your silly idea of the resurrection is really true, then if a woman has seven husbands, each of which dies before she dies, you know, think about all the chaos that's going to cause in the resurrection when all of her seven husbands are around and are tug or warring on her, right? She's mine. And, you, you know, so you may think that this argument sound, it like, it sounds like idle speculation about the future, but it's not. It's really important. It's important to Jesus. It's central to the arc of history that Jesus comes to bring about. These Jerusalem leaders challenging Jesus on the resurrection are seeking to undermine his hope and the hope of his disciples. The hope of the resurrection is one of the key things that motivates Jesus to challenge these leaders, even though he knows they're going to kill him. And to Jesus, this idea is bigger and more radical than you may think. It's definitely bigger than the Sadducees thought. And that's why Jesus says that they're only thinking this way because they don't understand the power of God. He flat out says, you guys are wrong. And this is why, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He's saying they have too small a vision of God and his amazing plans for his good world. And then Jesus tells them that God is going to bring a renewal to the universe that is so radical that it will fundamentally change the nature of things, even things as foundational as marriage. In Matthew 19, Jesus, uh, Matthew 19, 28, Jesus has this phrase that he says that really helps us understand his vision of the resurrection. My translation of that says, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. Now, I'm going to get a little nerdy for a second, but that that word that's translated new world here is the Greek word palingonesia, which is a compound word. Palin means again, and genesia means birth. So Jesus is talking about the world being born again. Jesus' vision of the resurrection is like birth. Now think about physical birth for a second. Something that we've all here gone through, right? Where one moment we received everything we needed for life and sustenance from this fleshy cord, right? And then the next minute, that thing could just be cut right off and thrown, thrown away. That's a pretty radical transformation, isn't it? 
And just like that cord, marriage was necessary and life-giving, but in the resurrection, what it provided is provided in much more wonderful ways. Is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I think the radical nature of this transformation is why Jesus uses this imagery. Jesus' grand driving hope is that God's mission is to radically renew his world through a new birth, which is probably ringing a few bells from another teaching you might be familiar with where Jesus said that people need to be born again, right? Jesus' understanding of the world and of humanity is that even though God made it good, something has gone so fundamentally wrong with it that it needs to be born again. We human beings need to be born again, and the whole universe needs to be born again. And Jesus is going to make this happen. This is Jesus' great hope. This is what motivates him, and this is our great hope. Revelation 21 gives a beautiful description and picture of this when it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This means that there is hope for this broken, fallen, sinful world. Hope in a world full of evil and shootings and destruction. And that means that God will not let human evil and spiritual evil and suffering and tragedy get the final word. It means that there is hope for our world to be set right, to be made new. And that is a powerful and beautiful idea. And, and if you have a group of people who believe with all they have that things are radically wrong and need to be set right and made new, and they're not afraid to die for that belief, it makes for a very powerful and compelling movement. In fact, a certain take on that idea could be quite scary, couldn't it? If those people were willing to kill for that hope. But, if the marching orders of these people with this hope are not conquer, but love. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself, even at cost to you. Now that is something worth embracing. That is good news. And that leads us to the next argument where Jesus gives us those beautiful marching orders. Because a scribe hears Jesus, these people asking Jesus all these hard questions, and he decides to weigh in with a hard question of his own. So the scribes, they were these religious leaders who taught the law. They were experts in the law to the point where, as their name suggests, they could write, they could draft legal documents. And since the law was from God, these men were viewed as very holy, and they had power and authority, and that all went to their heads. 
And if you read the rest of this chapter, you see what Jesus thinks about scribes, and it's not, it's not very pretty. And so this man's question is a very scribe-type question. It was another hot-button issue for the Jewish people, and especially teachers of the law and rabbis and whatnot. And so he asks, what is the most important commandment? Because there's like over 300 commandments, so what's the most important one, Jesus? And Jesus answers in this new and unique way by combining two commandments in his answer. And in doing so, he helps us understand love in a more robust and holistic way. He quotes first from Deuteronomy 6, saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then Jesus adds a verse from Leviticus 19 and says, The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So that first part from Deuteronomy 6 is called the Shema and, and would have been frequently recited and loved by Jewish people, kind of like an ancient creed. Observant Jews would recite this multiple times a day. Even today, Jews, uh, observant Jews will recite the Shema multiple times a day. And so it's a really big deal to add something to it, even a second scripture. When he, when he adds that command from Leviticus 19, making the love of others part of Jesus' ver version of the Shema, it shows that he sees love of others as essentially tied to the love of God. One theologian called this the Jesus Creed. Because this is how Jesus views how we are to relate to God and relate to the law and relate to other people. It's love. Love. G.K. Chesterton once said, let your religion be less of a theory and more of a love affair. We ought to fall in love with Jesus and not in the sappy, romanticized way that the movies show, but in this real, deep, soul-satisfying way. And when we do, it shifts the goal of religion from perfection to relationship. Ben Franklin, you know that guy with like invented bifocals and electricity and all that? He is a great example of confusing relationship with perfection. Because he removed from his own religion a personal God that he could have a relationship with. And he was left with trying to attain moral perfection through sheer force of will. And he says this, I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wish to live without committing any fault at any time. And then Franklin made a list of 13 virtues, and he tried to master one a week. And in his journal, he assessed himself every night how good he was doing. And after working really hard through this system of morality that he devised, he admitted this, I was surprised to find myself so much fuller of faults than I had imagined. I love his honesty. This external effort approach is a futile attempt to tame a sinful heart. And if we have the honesty of Ben Franklin, we must admit that the human heart is untamable. In fact, it doesn't need taming. It needs regeneration. It needs to be captured by a love so great that it conforms to that love. And it's out of a heart that truly and deeply loves our loving God that then we live rightly. That's why in Matthew's account of this story, Jesus says that the whole law hangs on this, these commands of love. Now, I came across uh, this week, I came across an interesting objection to this. 
I, was li- I love to listen to podcasts. I was listening to a podcast called This American Life. It's an NPR show, too, and it's like one of the most popular podcasts consistently. And the host is Ira Glass, and he grew up in an observant Jewish family, but he's no longer a believer. And he opened this week's episode with a conversation that he recently had with a retired minister named John, who was describing the big picture of the Bible as love your neighbor as yourself and love God above all. And so, of course, my ears perk up because I'm preparing to preach on this text. And then Ira Glass says this. I found a transcript online. I told John, like, I totally get the love your neighbor as yourself part of that. Like, I can see how that can reshape just everything about how you treat others and really everything you do in your life in the world. But I told him I never really understood why it's important to love God above all. You know what I mean? If you do what God wants and you try to be good and you try to treat others right, what difference does it make if you love God? What does God care? And then he talks about how when his mom died, he went back to synagogue for the first time in a long time. And the prayer that they pray at the anniversary of a loss of a loved one, it's all about how great God is. And he found that confusing. And he says, sitting there, it really hit me. What does God get out of that? Is he that needy? Now, when you believe in the sovereignty and the bigness of God like I do, it's hard to see this as a coincidence. And I'm preaching on this text, and I hear this thoughtful objection to it. Uh, So I figured that someone here might have similar objections or challenges to these ideas, and God wanted me to address them. So do we have anything to say to Ira Glass? I believe we do. In fact, it reminded me of a time when an author and pastor that I love named John Piper, he, he was invited to speak at Google, like the Google headquarters, you know, and, and what he decided to talk about was, is God an egomaniac? And of course, he answers no. But he gave them a syllogism, which in the study of logic is a simple construction to an argument with two premises and a conclusion. So an example is, I am a man, all men are mortal, therefore I am mortal. That's a a syllogism. So so John Piper formed this syllogism to explain why God can be self-exalting and desire our love without being an egomaniac. And it was this. So the first premise was him describing the essence of love. Premise one. Love desires and works and is willing to suffer to enthrall the beloved with the fullest and longest happiness. Premise two. Being internally enthralled with Jesus as the decisive revelation of God is the fullest and longest happiness in the universe. Conclusion. Therefore, when Jesus tells us that we must love him, treasure him, be satisfied in him above all others, he is loving us. And love is the opposite of egomania. So my paraphrase of this argument is this. True love seeks the greatest joy and flourishing of others. And loving Jesus with all you have is the path to the greatest joy and flourishing. Therefore, when Jesus desires and even demands our love, that we love him with all we have, he's doing so because he loves us. Not because he's needy. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is not an act of needy ego, but an act of infinite giving. The reason God seeks our greatest devotion and love is not because he's needy and won't be fulfilled until he gets it. It's because we're needy and won't be fulfilled until we give it. So it's not arrogance, it's grace. 
And it's not neediness, it's love. The very heart of the good news is that this is what Jesus died to achieve, our full and everlasting enjoyment of the greatness of God. 1 Peter 3 says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And Psalm 16 tells us what it's like to be brought to God. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is why he calls us to love him above all. Because he loves us so much. But if we don't understand the fullness of what Jesus is saying here, we may fall into the same problems that these people he's talking to fell into. Because his combination of these two passages, it confronts a common way of thinking for religious people. See, these people Jesus was talking to, they knew that God was of great importance. If they made a list of priorities, God would be at the top. You've probably seen lists like this. You know, you got God at the top, got to put God at the top. You know, family, friends, job, etc. The problem is that list approach doesn't really capture just how much we are to prioritize God or the full way in which we prioritize him. He's not just the top of the list. He's to infiltrate every part of the list. St. Augustine said, speaking of God, he loves thee too little who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. So it's not that I'd break my day up into sections of time and give God the first or even the biggest section. No, God gets the whole day. And so when I'm loving my neighbor as myself, I'm expressing my love for God. For example, I'm a new father. And uh, I've already had many experiences where an expression of love for my daughter is motivated by a desire to express my love for my wife. Now, I genuinely and deeply love my daughter. But as I act in love toward her, I'm often driven by a greater love for my wife. And this is a small imperfect example of how this plays out and reflects our relationship to God. And the amazing paradoxical thing is that we actually love others best when we love God most. Audrey, uh, Evergreen would probably be a little neglected if I didn't love Audrey so much. Like I have to do all kinds of things, but lo my love for Audrey helps me love Evergreen better. And it's just, that's a small picture of our love for God and loving him as we love others helps us love others better. And then it's so we because we only treat things according to their true value when we relate to them to, to the value giver. You see, it's why Jesus said that the greatest commandment, the second greatest commandment, is like the first because it naturally flows out of it. If we love God with all of our heart, we will love our neighbor as ourself. And if we're not loving our neighbor as ourselves, we're not loving God. They're essentially tied to one another. And that's one really beautiful thing we can learn from Jesus about loving God and loving others. We don't have to love other people and things, good things, less in order to love Jesus more. Loving God actually increases our capacity and ability to love other people and things more. I mean, okay, the great example of this is Jesus himself. We can all agree that Jesus loved the Father more than anyone ever has, right? And he is famous for the great extent of his love for us, right? It's not a coincidence. He loved us best 
because he loved God most. And he knows this is the only way. I mean, loving other people the way you love yourself, that's a pretty tall order if you really think about it. With all the effort and energy and creativity and speed that you meet your own needs, meeting others, loving them that way. That's a pretty tall order. And Jesus knows the only way it can happen, even a little bit, is if you're loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He knows because that's how he lived. And that's how he died. The kind of love for God that Jesus is calling us to is inseparable from your love for people. To Jesus, love is not just It's not just a feeling that happens to you, like when we talk about falling in love. Love is also action. When love is working properly, it's both emotion and will, both affection and action. Jesus' love involves a choice to pursue the good and the joy and the flourishing of others without expecting anything in return. And we don't need anything in return because we're satisfied in our love relationship with God. And this allows love to spread to people who either can't return, repay you or refuse to repay you. Like the poor or your enemies, right? And Jesus famously taught on loving both of these kinds of people. Because according to Jesus, this kind of generous, gracious love reflects the very heartbeat and character of God himself who loves his enemies. And, and the, the broken and the needy. And Jesus shows us this not only by teaching about it, but actually living it out. This is the way Jesus lived. He was constantly helping and serving people around him, moving towards the poor and hurting people who couldn't repay him. He loved and acknowledged those people who often fall through the cracks. And when Jesus marched into Jerusalem and made an enemy of all these people as he's calling them out on their hypocrisy and their, and their corruption when they're in places of power, instead of attacking them and overthrowing them, he allowed them to kill him. Jesus died for the selfishness and the corruption of his enemies because he loved them. And he prayed for their forgiveness And the Bible tells us that it was the power of God's love that we see revealed through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The Apostle Paul says God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Apostle John says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Which leads him to the conclusion, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So following Jesus involves trusting that at the center of the universe is this God overflowing with love for his people. Which means that we, as his created human beings in his image, our great call and purpose is to receive this love that has come to us so powerfully and beautifully in Jesus Christ. And then to extend it out to others. Reciprocating and reflecting this love. So Jesus is response to this scribe, it calls us to a relationship rather than to perfection. A relationship of loving God with all we have 
and loving others through that all-encompassing love. And recognizing that we actually love others best when we love God most. And we see this in the most perfect example of our amazing King Jesus. And so we devote ourselves to this one of great love. And we give Him our greatest allegiance. We place our faith in Him, our trust in Him. And we hold this great hope that His love will get the last word and renew this fallen, broken, evil world. And we presently love Him with, who has loved us so much. And we express and fulfill that love through loving others. And if you lack faith this morning, if you lack hope, you lack love. You're in good company. And it's okay to feel a little desperate by your heart not being where it needs to be. Let that lead you to turn to God who can shape you. Trust the one who can change hearts. He can change your heart. You need to be captivated by the goodness and the greatness of God. You have to grasp and be gripped by his great self-sacrificing love for you. And let his love loosen your grip on your own life so that you fall into his embrace. And he will carry you with him as he carries out his mission of love and restoration. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would captivate us by your great love. And work in us through your spirit to give us great love for you and for others. We hope in you and your overcoming, regenerating love that is bigger than we can imagine. Create in us hearts that love you supremely so that we will give ourselves over to you for our good and your glory. And so that we can love everything else and everyone else rightly. We pray in the name of your son. Amen.